Hi guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Mike Martin, who is Chief Executive Officer at CAI. Wow, what experience my guest has today. Uh, as the CEO of CAI, Mike Martin guides a team of 800 plus across the US, Europe, and APAC for the global professional services firm focused on engineering and quality consulting. With more than 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, including three decades at Eli Lilly, Mike has experience in engineering, operational leadership, engineering leadership, and, and large-scale project management in diverse global settings, specifically major capital projects in the US, Puerto Rico, China, and Ireland. And you're going to hear all about that in today's interview. Wherever you're listening to today's podcast, please leave us a rating and don't forget to subscribe. Enjoy today's show. Mike, welcome to the show. Ramon, thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you for for being here. Mike, you have quite the extensive experience uh in in industry and I'm I'm really glad that we can bring your background and experience and learnings to our listeners today. So let's start at the start, Mike. Tell us through talk to us how, you know, about how you got into the sector and your journey. Uh, you know, you spent the best part of three decades with one company that we're going to talk about as well, you know, ultimately to where you are today. So give us some of the backstory. Yeah. So, so the backstory on me, Ramon, is that uh, I, I'm from a family of, of people that have loved math and science across their their careers. Now, my dad is a mechanical engineer and, and I aspired to be that as well. And uh, went to my studies um, in university at Purdue and I got a degree in, in mechanical engineering. And that for me, it was just something that connected to my heart correctly early in my my life. I loved math and science. Um, I liked things that uh, moved and transferred energy and things like that. So engineering seemed like a very natural thing to me. <clears throat> and I, I graduated from Purdue and I started working at Lilly. And I'll, we can cover some of that uh, as you prefer. But, but basically, uh, as I joined Lilly and became aware of the pharmaceutical industry, and its connection to improving the lives of people, uh, their health, their well-being, their quality of life, that really uh, has inspired my career across the last 35 plus years uh, to, uh, to connect with ideas like that. So, so for me, engineering applied to life sciences is a, a super uh, great connection. It just kind of sings from my heart, so to speak. So let's talk through your, uh, I, think, I think if I've uh, got my numbers correctly, it was over 32 years with Eli Lilly, which is quite the, you know, quite the achievement, uh, I have to say. And obviously you, you started life, you know, in, in kind of more, you know, mechanical engineering, I suppose, traditional engineering roles, and then navigated your way up to, you know, site responsibility and leadership responsibility. So talk to us about those three decades at Lilly and I'm guessing when you joined Lilly, did you ever think you would be there 30 years later? Well, I I think if you had asked me back then, I would have said, yes, I'm looking to make a career at a company. And and I understood Lilly at the time and still today to be a 
uh, one of my advisors back then called it a cradle to grave operation. So I'm not sure if that's the right expression, <laughs> but, but the idea that you could make a career there was in my mind when I joined. Uh, it's a great place, and I have great regard for its people and their talents and its its desire and mission in in the world. So as I joined, um, I would say Ramon that that I was I was looking to do engineering. I loved engineering and wanted to do engineering activities. Uh, but I also had from my university days a desire to lead people. And I always thought back then that I would try to apply both of those things in my career. I wanted to lead, but I wanted to lead technical people. That was part of my my life's mission or desire. And so I got a chance at Lilly to do that in several ways, and uh, my career developed over over time. So if you want, I can walk you through a few of the, the key points. That would be great. Okay, so so I joined, and I, I was doing traditional engineering roles and, and activities, like you said, so some very basic things, but I was actually applying the the learning that I got uh, from university and in, in very detailed, calculated ways on paper with drawings and, and uh, building things and maintaining things. So <clears throat> those are all part of that early career foundation for me. The foundation um, that I built in those first few years uh, technically was incredibly important for me later as I was leading people that were in technical roles. So I, I moved along in Lilly in several roles and, and uh, uh, just kind of summarizing them here, I would say to you, I, I led projects um, in, in uh, various parts of uh, my roles in Indiana, uh, here in the Midwest of the United States. And I um, got a chance to lead uh, organizations like engineering teams and operations teams. All those things always connected back to the technology and the and the engineering uh, learning that I had. So, um, <clears throat> fantastic experiences like living in Puerto Rico twice, um, leading an opera uh, an engineering team in uh, uh, dry products manufacturing. So this is the oral uh, solid dosage form. And also starting up a, a very large biotech factory that makes insulin there. Uh, fantastic experience living with my my family there in Puerto Rico. Great memories of that. A chance to live in China for two and a half years and build a cartridge filling uh, facility there. Extremely eye opening, mind expanding. Uh, changes your view of the world and and uh, how things work. Uh, fantastic experience there. And, and close to the end of my career I, at Lilly, I got a chance to build a biotech factory in Kinsale and live and work there. So I've seen a fair bit of the world in my travels um, and really, really enjoyed that um, and found connections to people to be uh, kind of the core and, and central part of what I, I enjoyed the most. And, and I want to kind of double click on that point because that was one of the questions I had for you, which is you know, you've almost had Indiana as your base over the years, and then you've bounced through different international locations, which is, which is great. And I love what you said there around your, uh, I suppose that time in China in particular changed your view of the world. And it's it's one of the reasons I like to move around in my role and and kind of move my family from different places because I could not agree more. Talk to us about, I suppose, how it changed your view of the world. Obviously, you spent a considerable amount of time in Puerto Rico, in China, and Ireland. You know. As you reflect back on that time that you and presumably your family had for some of those roles as well together in in these uh, kind of foreign locations res- with respect to being in the US and the Midwest, 
how did they change your view of the world and how did they, I suppose, make you a better person or leader in, as part of your kind of growth uh, at Lilly? That's a deep question. So I, I could give you a 20-minute answer, but let me <laughs> let me start with a few things here. That um, A little bit of background for me. I grew up on a farm. Um, my grandfather had an apple orchard um, that he ran as a business in addition to being a principal and a math teacher in high school. And my uncle had a dairy farm. And so I, I, I've been in, you know, rural Indiana on in a farming community in a very small town down near Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, that's kind of been the core of who I was growing up. So, so imagine that guy moving to Puerto Rico or imagine that guy moving to China or that guy moving to Ireland later in his life. So that's me. I, I, I came from a small town. I was, I lived on a farm and uh, I, I became an engineer and I began to explore the world. And so I come from kind of, I would describe maybe a humble uh, beginning. Uh, and that's always been a, a part of who I am at the, in the middle of me. And I took that with me wherever I went. I, I, I think that people are fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate the skills and talents of people I've encountered around the world. Um, I've always, um, as I moved around or traveled, uh, tried to show respect for a culture, for a people, for a, a very different way of thinking or being, um, and not assuming that just because of you know where I've I've come from that my ideas were the better ones because I learned that they often were not. So, so talking about uh, living in China, so you can imagine a Midwest uh, United States uh, farm guy who moves to Suzhou, which is a a city, let's say, that rivals the size of Chicago in the U.S., and uh, you're you're living amongst a set of people that just grew up very differently from you, um, and you look different, uh, and you speak different, and you like different foods, uh, for example. So just, uh, I love to explore, and so I didn't just kind of work and then stay in my apartment. I worked, and I explored. My explorations involved walking around and and seeing uh, different parts of the city I was in. Lots of trips to Shanghai, uh, exploring there. <clears throat> but it was more than just uh, seeing things. It was visiting with people, uh, seeing uh, Sunday afternoons in a park in Shanghai, and seeing the the Tai Chi and and people exercising with various pieces of equipment, or walking their dogs, or doing dances together. Just fascinated me um, and realizing that for this population, that's normal. That's the way that they are and they live and uh, not something you may be experienced in, in a farming community in Southern Indiana. So just really eye-opening and I enjoyed every uh, every moment of that. What, what a great story. And I love the kind of <laughs> the cliched American farm boy kind of goes, goes international. I'm sure there's a movie in this somewhere, Mike. And uh, I was smiling when you were talking about some of your experiences in China. My uh, my family and I went to Japan earlier this year, and you know we we took our young kids, and some of it was so so different to what we see in the UK and the US, and you know where we've lived previously. But at the same time, I remember going to a park one day, and you know some guy, guy, young kids playing football or soccer in in the park, and you know my kids, I said, go and ask them if you can play, and then five minutes later they were having a game against these kids, and. It was something that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, like there are so many cultural differences, but there are things that 
there are commonalities in language and the way that people do things which are similar as well which i find really fascinating as i move but i love your perspective and experiences so I yeah. comment on that for just a moment so just absolutely imagine yourself in in shanghai and you get on the metro the subway and just observing people you know they they, they get on with their their older parents they get on with their infant children and you just watch how people interact with the elderly or you watch how they they care for or um guide their children uh and it this it's the same. <laughs> you do that in New York City or Chicago or Louisville, Kentucky, and you see the same kinds of interactions between people. That for me is kind of magical that you get to see you get to see the human part of people through vastly different cultures and ways of thinking. And at the core, we're all human. And I think that's a really important learning point. I, I could not agree more. And yeah, I'm I'm great to hear you echo the similar sentiment. So Let's go back to the story. 32 years, uh, Lily, global roles, engineering background, leading teams, and then you decide to retire. So looking at your background, retirement looks like it lasted one month. So tell me, and you know, I'm sure you had a great send off from the team at Lily and you know, you, you had a fantastic kind of end to your time there and was celebrated rightly so so talk us through your decisions to retire and then i suppose what happened during that period before we kind of go on to talk about why you came out of retirement so to speak okay all right so the the career that i had spanned as i said various parts of the world living in different types of roles and uh leading engineers uh leading operations uh, one that we didn't talk about much was leading a, a device manufacturing team as the site head. So all that stuff combined together, uh, a very, very fulfilling career. Uh, I have huge and great relationships with the people at Lily. And, and uh, as I was living in Ireland at the end of uh, my career, I didn't realize it was the end of my career yet. I was meant to be in Ireland for, let's say, three to four years on a project that I was uh, driving a very large expansion. And um, hadn't hadn't thought about retiring. And at that time, uh, way back in 2017, uh, late 2017, uh, Lilly offered an early retirement program to uh, many of its employees. So, and, and I happened to be in the right time in my career where that was a very attractive thing to do because it 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 just it would have been very hard to say no to it based on all the benefits that came from it. So. The funny part of that story, Ramon, is that that as I was talking through this with my wife, and we were really enjoying our time in in uh, Cork, um, Ireland. So we lived in in County Cork, uh, down near Kinsale, which is kind of a remote, sorry, a resort fishing um, and uh, uh, countryside village right there on a, on a bay, a harbor, beautiful place. We just really enjoyed our time there, and uh, would have enjoyed staying longer, but as this package came and we were talking, my wife's um, mother suffers from dementia. So it's a very debilitating disease that we could talk about for an hour, but a fantastic lady, her mother is, uh, but uh, that disease was progressing such that my wife was making frequent trips back home to Indiana to help with the care. And uh, that burden for her and for me, as she was uh, in and out of uh, Ireland frequently, also contributed to the decision to say, all right, let's, let's consider this a retirement, although maybe a short one, 
and and let's uh, let's see what might be next. And and my wife uh, patiently guided me in that choice and said, I think retirement might be the best thing for us, but you're going to work somewhere else. <laughs> she wasn't ready for me to be home full time, so and I can understand that. And I wasn't ready either, so I knew as I was leaving that I'd be seeking something else to do. Uh, and all those things combined uh, to drive in that decision. I love that. I, I, you know, I love that kind of classic. I mean, many of us who are probably married are, are have a wry smile as you talk through that. You know, honey, we're, we're retiring, and when I say we, it's just me. You're not retiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously, you took a little bit of time off, and then CAI came knocking. I assume, and to talk to us about you know what ultimately brought you to this organization and 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 then go if you don't mind going on and talk to us about the company and its history and you know for many of our listeners that we may have seen uh, CAI at a show or a conference but might not know the kind of origin story and, and what the company does so please give us a bit of an overview of of the company and also what attracted you to that particular organization because my guess is you could have walked into pretty much any big pharma company you wanted across the world, um, and that was probably on the table. So it'd be great to get your take on why you chose this particular company. Yeah, that, that's probably a fair assessment. I, I could have uh, pursued any number of places uh, to go and work. Um, and and I'd known uh, Bob Chu is is the co-founder of CAI, um, and we can talk about him in a moment and, and what he did to, to drive this uh, great company to where it is. But I had interacted with Bob since, let's say, the early 90s uh, when he was with a different company. And so I got to know him across a period of more than 20 years, 25 years maybe, and um, saw what his skills were and what kind of company he was building. Now, as I, as I built and started up uh, plants and factories around the world, I interacted with CAI in almost all of those. Uh, they've been a part of of projects that I was on. So I got to see the company and how it worked. And I knew, I knew Bob personally from uh, years of, of discussions and encounters. So uh, I, I didn't seek employment with, with Bob and his company directly. I, as a part of my job search, I inquired with Bob if he knew of somebody that was looking for, you know, somebody with my CV. And Bob, uh, uh, thankfully, said, uh, "I do. I, I, I want. <laughs> I would like to have you come and, and lead a, a, a program and project management business for CAI." So, I joined with that in mind uh, to take all my career experiences around the world uh, on the client side, starting up, building, and starting up factories, and then joining a company that that's their mission is to build and start up factories, and so. For me, the combination of knowing about the company, knowing about its its values and its the way that it, it, it's meant to serve, uh, along with so many years on the client side of understanding how it works, I thought this is a really good combination of of applying my experience, uh, being able to 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 operate from a point of empathy because. I've sat in the chair of the people I'm, I'm now serving, and so I understand what kind of uh, pressures and, and troubles they're in, uh, and so I can uh, more effectively offer them help and solutions from that perspective, uh, combined with a, a company that I think has um, a great set of principles. It's based on integrity and, and service to other people and service to society and, and a, a view of, of driving towards the future. So 
Um, I, I think those are all really important parts of, of this, hey, what did I know about this company and, and what attracted me to join? Uh, so, Ramon, I can speak a little bit more about the background of CAI if that would be of interest. Yes, please. The background and and if that nicely segues into talking about the types of work that you do. And, you know, when I looked at the services on the website, there's there's quite a there's quite an extensive list of, of projects that you deliver for clients. So if you can maybe share with our listener, you know, what typical projects look like, what the clients tend to be like. My guess is it's a combination of, you know, big pharma companies and CDMOs and and you know everything in between. If you like, maybe bio, large biopharma companies. But if you can talk to us about the type of work that you deliver for them, that would be great. Just to kind of paint a picture of a typical project, so everyone can get a feel. Yeah. So let me first offer this bit of color commentary about the nature of CAI, because um, I think the history will help me to uh, describe the answer your uh, to your question. Um, Bob is uh, Bob Chu, co-founder. He's from the nuclear, the U.S. nuclear Navy, and so he served on U.S. nuclear submarines. He is an engineer at heart as well. Uh, imagine that you're in the nuclear Navy and all the rigor and discipline required uh, from a technology standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, uh, to care for, govern, start up, uh, maintain, operate a nuclear submarine. And so I described this as uh, like 27 years ago. Um, Bob Chu jumps out of a nuclear submarine and lands in the pharmaceutical industry. And and 27 years ago, I was in the pharmaceutical in- industry and it's r- rigoring discipline for um, plant startups and equipment oversight is something that was uh, lacking. And so I, I, I noted that um, as Bob applied his skill to an industry that really needed that kind of skill, I thought this is a really good way of thinking. And and Bob and company over the years influenced how industry uh, starts up its facilities. I, I don't know a better way to describe it. The, a thought leadership is is the thing I would describe. So now let me jump forward to to what we are at the time. It was Bob and team doing what we call commissioning and qualification. So just imagine that as you're starting up a a set of equipment or you're starting up a set of systems that are a part of a plant that helps make a drug product. And and that was the core of this company and still is. Uh, And to that, we have added a variety of other services like being able to uh, help the operators to become qualified setting up quality management systems, setting up uh, equipment maintenance programs, uh, taking care of <clears throat> of project management, uh, and, and many other services that uh, the listeners can find on our website. And, and those things are all woven together now in an idea that industry is calling and we call operational readiness. So if you're trying to start up a, a factory, an important part of that is equipment. I, I that's what I did as as a at my time at Lilly was start up plants. But but that's not all there is to it. If you just get the equipment ready to go, but the people aren't, and the procedures aren't, and the quality systems aren't ready, all those things combined together are really what the the client wants. They don't just want a factory that's been equipment tested. 
they want a factory that's ready to produce the product that they dreamed they would make to make the world a better place. And that's what we're, we set about to do. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Let me just test my understanding. So if, if I'm Pfizer, say, and I'm wanting to commission a few sites around the world for, you know, whether it be sterols or OSD or mRNA technology, whatever, whatever it is, am I right in thinking they will then commission you guys and say, effectively, this is what we want, kind of go make it happen, lock stock, you know, the facility, the software, the people, you know, the equipment, do you guys kind of the data and the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, do you guys take the whole heavy lift off the customer to go and do that? I assume you do obviously in combination with the client and not kind of at arm's length in isolation. Is that, am I kind of, am I understanding the the kind of type of things that you do correctly? Yeah. So Ramon, that's close. There's a couple of pretty key parts that we've decided strategically to not be a part of, meaning not have a skill ourselves to do it. <clears throat> Those are um, uh, facility design, like the detailed design of a, f- a facility or facility construction, the management of contractors in the construction of that facility. We've chosen strategically to partner with other companies who've spent their, their uh, company lives um, building that kind of skill. And that's a really important skill it's not something that we'd chosen to be a part of or to, to execute ourselves. And I think that's a good strategic choice for our company. So if Pfizer, for example, came to us and said, we want to build a factory in Hangzhou uh, in China, and if they wanted us to design or construct that, we would say politely, that's not our skill to, to design and construct, but there are partners and that could help you with that. And so we could refer them to other companies. Sure. But we would be very happy to help them with um, all the things that, that surround that. So overall program management, for example, or uh, the, the startup of that equipment, the setting up of quality systems, the organization and training of people that will operate that facility, the integration of, of um, computer system validation, meaning testing the computer system, and I could go on and on with other things that would be associated, but that's kind of the remit that we would provide uh, when asked. And, and so, Ramon, I would, I would say to you also, it, it's not our intent to do everything for every client every time. One of the most important skills I think our team and our people exhibit is asking questions about what's, what problem is trying to be solved and then offering the parts of the things that we can do in service to solve those problems. Uh, in other words, I, I don't have to do everything um, for, uh, it doesn't have to be a turnkey operation. I don't have to do every aspect for every client. Some clients have a great skill in, in some part of that work, and they don't need us to do that. Totally happy with that. We supplement where they, they maybe have a gap or a bandwidth problem. And uh, our our goal is to create value for the client. It's not anything else but that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's uh, it's always good business practice, is it, to be able to say no to a client and recognize where you excel and recognize where you can refer that to someone who is an expert in that 
that that particular field. So I think you've articulated that particularly well. And then if we if we think about then, I suppose the the breadth of services that you offer, and my assumption is that you know it's a global scale. I have to ask about the name though, because um, I believe you know we, we were you know off off record we were chatting about the name and how to pronounce and is it the letters is it you know is it a different abbreviation where did, where did the name come from because I believe it it stands for something and uh, it wasn't what I thought it would stand for which is why I'm asking the question yeah no, no problem so the company was founded and its legal name is Commissioning Agents Incorporated. That's that's how it's registered on the books around the world, um, and that is an important part of who we are because that's where we started. We were commissioning agents, and so a set of people that set about testing equipment. And as I said earlier, that's the core of of the company and and its uh, main area of service to to its clients. Um, and so as we've become more than commissioning, um, it's been important to us to to describe our company with a different, um, let's say, uh, logo, so to speak. And so the, the idea of calling it CAI, Commissioning Agents Incorporated, became the way we've self-branded that. We haven't changed the legal name. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, details that have to be worked out if you want to do such a thing. But it's, we call it CAI. You, you might hear people pr- try to pronounce it uh, as one word, but it's technically three letters. And the origin of the name comes from what the company started to be. Uh, but our brand is much more than that. What we want people to see us as is an operational readiness company or an operational excellence company. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense given the the kind of the manner in which you guys deliver services for your clients. And talking about, I suppose, service delivery, how have you found the jump from, I suppose, being a client? You, 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 you know, you mentioned rightly so that you probably have the ability to empathize with clients and how they're feeling and their goals and challenges. You know, if you're working with say a big pharma company in particular, you I suspect will empathize more than anyone in the world. But at the same time, you know, I always think com- people that are often worked for one company or for what, you know, on the client side for a big chunk of their career can often find it difficult to go on the service side because then you're answerable to clients who are paying your bills. And so how have you found that transition? And you know, what are the things that you've learned from being, I suppose, on the, the, the vendor side and the service provision side versus being the client? That's a great question. Uh, I found it to be of great use and value to have client experience as you serve those kinds of clients. Now, it's of great value. But but it is it is a bit of a transition uh, to go from uh, being the person who's asking for the service and and uh, getting the service contracted and getting it executed and paid for to being the person providing that service and and I'll you know just to give you an anecdote from my early time at CA I've been here f- uh, five years now I found myself like in a couple of projects speaking with my client voice. <laughs> so, <laughs> Kind of more of a commanding. Um, the, we're going to do this, and and I I had to have to be careful as I'm serving a client to not not drive something that they don't want driven. So um, that didn't cause any big problem with that. It was just one of those things you recognize. Hmm, you got to approach this a little bit differently. Um, <laughs> now, now on on the other side of that, as a client, I always looked for partner companies 
that cared about value, that cared about service, that cared about getting the problem solved, not just uh, giving a deliverable, uh, but actually solving the real problem. And I think that um, that approach that I looked for from service providers is the one that I'm trying to provide now as a service provider. I want our team to solve the problem that's there, not necessarily just what's asked for, but but looking at the drivers of, of the problem and saying, I can do what you've asked, but here's what's really going on. And if we solve this, we're all going to have a better outcome. And that's what I think is important about <clears throat> applying the client experience to the uh, uh, the work uh, now serving clients. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your humility and vulnerability to share that as well. And kind of given the experience that you've had in your career to be able to I suppose be so self-aware and be like oh hang on I might need to dial that voice down which says a lot about you and I suppose following that thread I think you know if I look at someone like you and when we first met I had you know I'd love to sit down with you have a few beers and learn everything I can about you from in from a perspective of leadership because I imagine you have learned a huge amount you you said something right at the start which I I jotted down, but you know, very early on in your career, you said you wanted to lead technical teams, and that's what you have done. And then you've obviously grown into more senior leadership roles, and ultimately to the CEO of the business. As you reflect back, and this is another, we could have another hour episode on this, Mike, no doubt about it. But you know, if if some of our listeners are not necessarily early on in their careers, or you know, they're in middle management, or they they've come from technical backgrounds, and they are or engineering backgrounds, and they are kind of making their way up into the more kind of general management, whether it's, you know, site leadership or, you know, leading teams. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned along the way from a leadership perspective? And I suppose going hand in hand with that, some of the some of the mistakes that you have made and things that assumptions you may have got wrong, you know, earlier on in your career, which, you know, as you look back now, you have got a better handle on them. Yeah, that is a deep question. And we could spend a long time on this. Um, <clears throat> leadership is something that I would say I've learned a lot about it. <clears throat> I have a lot left to learn. Uh, and I don't think, I, I think it's probably inexhaustible uh, as, a, as an area of study. I always liked it uh, from uh, you know, secondary school. I was, I was in uh, organizations and, and helping uh, with parts of leadership in university. I uh, was in housing organizations and uh, campus organizations and had had uh, parts of, of my role there as leader and doing leadership type activities. So it's always been something of interest to me. <clears throat> I think for me, probably one of the biggest core parts or the, the key parts of what I try to be as a leader, uh, I, I might frame it uh, as a, I, I want to be a leader that serves other people. Uh, for me, leadership shouldn't be about the leader. Leadership should be about the people. And I think if we each need to learn anything about leadership, it's that. The people that I admire the most, it wasn't because I thought this person really has a, a great vision and is driving everybody towards it. It was the person has a great vision and they're inspiring people and lifting them up and um, leveraging their capability such that the vision is achieved. And, and the people at the end of that are 
more fully developed, they're stronger, they're, they have their own visions established and, and they look back at that experience and maybe have a few goosebumps and say, I really loved that whole process. That's what I want to be as a leader, um, serving others, uh, building teams, uh, being a multiplier, um, not a divider, a person that helps other people be the best versions of themselves. And for me, that's that's probably the key thing that I've I've learned. So back to the farm boy story. <laughs> so, so imagine the farm boy who you know I, you learn a lot by growing up on a farm and working with with uh, dairy cows and with uh, tractors and and apple trees and so on. You learn a lot about yourself and a lot about uh, people. But put that farm boy in China. If that farm boy goes to China thinking he knows everything about China. That that guy's gonna fail in China. You've got to spend time as a leader listening. You have to spend time as a leader seeing what people are struggling with and having empathy for uh, helping a person overcome something. And those are what I think my international living experiences did uh, for me the most was to help me see the world through different eyes. I loved that part of it. Yeah, no doubt about that. And um, I'm, I'm kind of laughing you know, to myself because I'm currently in my home in the UK and we live on a farm pretty much and I can see a bunch of dairy cows <laughs> through my window as we're, we're talking. And uh, I couldn't... Yeah, I think you, you've nailed... You've, you absolutely nailed that answer. And I, and I really want to kind of underline what you said around that kind of serving other people and... You know, my chairman at Remarting gave me that lesson as well and said, it's not about you, it's about them. Yeah. And it, that simple phrase really helped me kind of think about that. You know, it's not about just you being the center of the show and all that kind of stuff. It's actually about enabling them and picking them up when they're going through a difficult time. And to your point, that kind of empathy and recognizing that and, and helping them on that journey is, is great. So thanks for sharing that. And I know we have about five minutes left, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, I suppose, the future and, and where the market is at right now. I suppose, uh, you know, at time of recording, the world's a funny place right now, right? You know, interest rates are high, inflation remains pretty high. Um, the capital markets have taken a bit of a battering in the biotech space and uh, big pharma companies are, you know, their results are very mixed to say the least at the minute. So how does how does that outlook impact you guys and in terms of are you still seeing companies investing in new facilities and upgrades and all that kind of stuff, which I suspect drives your business. And and I suppose closely aligned to that is, you know, many of our listeners are in the outsourcing space that they are working for, you know, equipment businesses, manufacturing companies, packaging companies. You know, is is you might not have seen the same growth from say big pharma companies and biotech companies, but are you seeing pockets of growth maybe from the CDMO sector instead that's helping you guys grow? Yeah, so there certainly are a lot of uh, forces going on in the market uh, today. Uh, some of those forces uh, were in f- full bloom a couple of years ago during the pandemic and lots of activity and projects for not just the life science industry, but but for many industries was kind of um, driven and, and it bloomed uh, during that period. Now the world coming through that crisis has uh, then uh, experienced a very high inflationary period, which is subsiding uh, s- slowly but surely. Um, and ha- because of interest rate changes, that certainly affects capital markets. There's no doubt capital markets are affected, which means that uh, people that we serve 
they're being more particular about which projects they invest in. They're being more careful uh, to make sure their business case is solid, and they're taking longer to push the go button. And that certainly impacts a service provider's um, uh, pipeline of possible work. And I think uh, there are parts of industry that are uh, investing heavily. There are some companies that are still really driving investment, and there are some that have uh, tooled back and and uh, paused or slowed down. Uh, are there pockets like um, CMOs or CDMOs or pockets uh, of cell gene therapy companies? Yes, um, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's wholly true for any given sector that it's the one that's booming. I think it really comes down to what product are they about to, to uh, launch to the world and how solid is its business case. And so as a service provider, you got to help those companies that um, are driving towards a solution uh, that serves and makes the lives of people better. You have to help them find a way to deliver that cost effectively. That's become so much more important in the last um year or two after pandemic um, experiences. Uh, so no, go ahead. Sorry. As you can see, are you, are you able to share, you know, you mentioned there are certain areas that you are seeing kind of pockets, like certain types of products. My guess is that's very much in the, the large molecule cell gene therapy kind of biologic space, you know, or are you seeing, you know, still traditional small molecule products, you know, and I suppose kind of as I say, the more traditional kind of requirements from a manufacturing perspective, are you still seeing them, you know, growing in your space? Yeah. So I think some of the things that, you know, small molecule uh, as a concept has, has had kind of cycles, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was everything in the pharma industry. And that diminished and became more biologics based. Um, there's kind of this growth of cell and gene therapy ideas but small molecules tending to make a little bit of a comeback these days as, as people have uh, come up with products that can be made that way. It's just a, if you can make your product through a, a small um, um, molecule or a chemical synthesis, it's pretty efficient uh, if you can make it that way. And so it just really, for me, depends on the product. But if you, if you thought about therapeutic areas, uh, diabetes and its associated um, uh Health problems are an area of focus for the world. That's a worldwide problem. Uh, I would say uh, things that uh, affect cognitive ability, uh, like dementia and the story I hinted at about my mother-in-law. That's an area of great exploration, and eventually there'll be some products that really change the world in that space. Those are the kinds of... So it's kind of more therapeutic area, I think, based. Cancer is one of those that's always been hot, but I think the ideas that are coming from cell and gene therapy might revolutionize that. The difficulty with cell and gene therapy is the cost because it's individualized. It tends to cost a lot of money and the world's going to have to figure out how to fund those things uh, to uh, effectively uh, save the life of one human at a time, uh, which which is a problem that I'm sure can be solved. Uh, and I'm excited to see how, how we as a a population attack that problem. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think I think that's probably a great place to end the conversation. Mike, I've really enjoyed meeting you and getting to know you. And thank you for being so open and honest and sharing your experiences. There's so much good stuff in today's interview that I suspect our listeners are jotting down or rewinding back and 
in learning for you. So congratulations on the success that you've had and good luck with your, all your endeavors at CAI and all the good stuff you do. And thanks, of course, for being a guest on Molecule to Market. It's been my great pleasure, Ramon. I appreciate being invited and, and I hope that uh, our discussion is insightful and uh, useful for others that, that are listening. And there you have it. That was the delightful Mike Martin, CEO at CAI. What a great guy he is. I honestly, I could listen to him all day. He just oozes kind of wisdom in class. And I hope you got that from today's interview. Um, Some of the kind of learnings and remarks, if you like, that I took from today's interview to share with you. So I think, you know, early on in his career, it was clear that he had a passion for engineering. Like many of you are in technical roles, it just shows how you can take that passion, learn how to lead a team, a technical team, and that can lead you into different areas of expertise. And in Mike's case, obviously, sent him down a road of you know becoming a site leader and then into global roles. And you know him and I obviously spoke at length about what it was like living in different companies and some of the learnings that he had that changed his perspective of the world. And he kept coming back to this point of him being you know a, a farm boy from the Midwest and some of that kind of humble beginning and not thinking he knows everything was clearly part of his makeup as a very curious guy and has no doubt been a huge part of his success uh, over the years. And, you know, his, his story kind of continues and success that he had at Eli Lilly. It was interesting to hear what kind of, <laughs> how his retirement didn't work and, and the impact his wife had on kind of saying, hey, this is not the right time to retire and ultimately what brought him back out of retirement, the type of organization, the type of role, and ultimately a different perspective where he gets to be the service provider rather than the client. And, you know, along that with, along those lines, I think he was very uh, kind of, he showed great humility in the way that he, sh- he kind of shares some of the challenges he's had and actually even you know, with his vast experience and actually, you know, going through that transition, which I thought was really, really excellent. And Lots of leadership lessons in there for you guys to take away. So please, please jot them down. And even towards the back end, I think it was useful to hear his take on, you know, the kind of different pockets of growth within the industry in different markets. And that small molecule is still very much here to stay, which we hear across many of our interviews. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. And wherever you're listening to today's podcast, please. Uh, subscribe, like the podcast, share it with some colleagues. And thanks as always to my team for producing this wonderful show on my behalf. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know we'll see you very soon you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space.
Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.